Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. Listeners may not know this, but I've been involved for many years now in various forms of marriage politics, beginning with some work I did in the early 2000s around disentangling civil rights from marital status, but also as a political scientist who's taught about this stuff. Many of these earlier conversations centered on the rights of unmarried people, and specifically gay and lesbian folks, to visit one another in the hospital, or to be eligible for employer-based health insurance. Because his marriage to his husband John Arthur was not recognized by the state of Ohio, however, Jim Obergefell's case raised a whole other set of questions. I've wanted to talk with Jim for a long time now, and can you blame me? Not only is Jim a super impressive civil rights icon, though he's still understandably uncomfortable with that status, he's also, in my view, one of the most thoughtful public figures we have here in Ohio. And while many of us know Jim for the Supreme Court case that bears his name, and which made same-sex marriage legal across the U.S., we're talking today because Jim's running for the Ohio House in the Sandusky area. While we still don't know the exact geographical boundaries because statehouse leadership cynically continues to put forth maps that don't pass muster with the Ohio Supreme Court, we do know that Jim's running and that he's got ideas worth knowing about. In our conversation, Jim reflects on the transformative experience of caring for John, including some thoughts about the importance of addressing the mental health needs of caregivers themselves. With an eye towards the election, we talk about the legislative map fiasco and what it means for democracy and representation in Ohio, about Jim's hometown of Sandusky, and some of the health issues facing Northern Ohio and the state as a whole. Before turning to my conversation with Jim, just a reminder to please rate this episode in your podcast app. You can do that right now. And if you want to help us make the show sustainable, we'd appreciate your becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month, which you can do by following the links at prognosisohio.com. While we'd love for you to become a Patreon, it's also just really helpful to us if listeners share episodes with friends, colleagues, and family on social media and elsewhere. And finally, since it's related to today's episode, you might want to go back and listen to our last episode with Maria Bruno of Equality Ohio, in which we discuss the wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation moving through the Ohio State House. Jim and I touch on some of it, but it'd be worth your time to go back and listen to that conversation as well. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for being on the podcast and taking some time to talk with us. Happy to do it, Daniel. Thanks for inviting me. I, I want to start with a little bit of, of kind of going back a bit. Before we talk about your candidacy for Ohio State for the Ohio State House, you know, I have to take this opportunity to reflect a little bit on health and health care in, in your in, in your kind of longer history. You know, as I'm reading the book, and, and it's a wonderful book, uh, and, and uh, it really grips you, I was really struck by your vivid accounts of Ways in which love, and in this case, your love of your husband, John, manifest in extremely intimate and at times exhausting kind of scenes of caregiving, you know, and I, I don't think we think about this enough in health and healthcare, just how important caregiving is and how transformative it can be. So I'd like to start there, you know, even before the legal cases and the politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did your experience as a caregiving spouse for John shape your thinking about what it means to be sick, to be dying, to be embodied in the U.S., or even just about the American healthcare system itself? You know, for me, it was one of those things when John was first diagnosed, and as his 
illness as ALS progressed and he got worse and he lost more and more abilities, you know, from my perspective, here's the person I love and I'm going to do everything I can to care for him. And that manifested itself in many ways, even from like the moment after John received his third diagnosis, concurring diagnosis of ALS from a neurologist, he was the one who said, Jim, we've got to start thinking about how to make things different because the condo we lived in was in an old factory building. It wasn't accessible. And he said, Jim, we've we've got to sell this and buy something else. Mm-hmm. So he was the one who really from the start was thinking about the future and thinking about what this illness meant for him. But then he also was thinking about what that meant for me after he was gone. But, you know, as he lost his ability, you know, one of the things that I was always concerned about really goes back to early in our relationship. John was an allergic asthmatic. And in the first, I want to say, two years of our relationship, he respiratory arrested. And he was rushed to the hospital, the emergency room. And I remember sitting in that waiting room wondering, am I going to be able to see John? Because it was a Catholic hospital. And this was in two th- in 1990, I'm going to say 94, 95. Mm-hmm. And wondering whether or not I'd be able to go back and see him. Because I wasn't recognized as his family. So even back then, that was one of the fears. And that fear came back to me during his ALS diagnosis because we were still considered legal strangers. But you do what you have to do when you love someone and they're losing their abilities. And when it got to the point we needed to talk about hospice care, that was a big concern for us. You know, can we find a service that will respect John, respect me, and treat us as they would any other family going through end of life. That was that was scary. Yeah. And that was a consideration that nobody should have to have when they're watching a loved one near the end of their life. In the 90s and early 2000s, I remember with my engagements with the gay rights movement that visitation rights was a huge conversation, right? That was that was one of the biggest ones, the, the fear of what would happen. Even academic conferences, we'd have discussions about where to hold the conference because what what if uh, a partner of, of somebody uh, attending the conference needed to be hospitalized and they couldn't see them? And there was a whole politics around this. In this case, you were able to see John I, I noted the language. You didn't use the language of husband or even partner in the book. You say you use the language significant other. And this person at this this hospital did let you in to see him. But it, it was an added layer of anxiety that you don't need at a moment where you're just trying to care for somebody you love. Absolutely. And I, I find it... <sighs> I, I struggle to find the right adjective for this, but to, to add that added layer of uncertainty, of concern, of fear to anyone going through an emergency or, you know, as I mentioned, end of life with hospice service, it's it's inhumane. I can't think of a better a better way to phrase that. So, you know, as John's ALS progressed, you know, I I was committed to caring for him. And in our conversations, our, our decision was we wanted to make sure John was home for for the end of life and that meant finding a, a a home hospice provider and luckily enough a family friend was the executive director of a hospice service in Cincinnati so we had that personal connection and we we knew from her 
from her role, her position in that organization, and also just the way she is, and really the 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 whole concept of hospice that we we should and would receive some, you know, care that was no different than any any other family going through this. But it was it was really scary to to consider that to think I'm going to be caring for John. Other than those like six hours a week when the hospice nurses arrived, and that was also relying on other home health care services to come in and assist when when necessary. And all of that was freighted with this added fear, this added concern of how will that work for us? Will we be treated equally? Will be will we be treated with with dignity and respect? And Again, when you're going through that, that's the last thing you should be worried about. Every person should should know that that's what they're going to receive in their healthcare is dignity and respect. It's one of the things that really comes out clearly in the book is the the way in which your very close social networks and the kindness of others filled all sorts of gaps, right? You, you know, from the kinds of things you just described, even to the funding of your ability to fly to Maryland. To, to get married, you know, these are huge costs. And in our society, especially when you have discrimination like this, um, mitigating those costs can be really meaningful to people. But I, I do wonder, I mean, as and it will turn in a moment to thinking about your, your, deci- your decision to run for office, it seems to me, and I wonder if I could get your take on this, this is one of the things that, you know, good government can do, that policy can do. It can make people's lives a, a little bit easier during these kinds of moments. Also, on the other side, and we look at a lot of what's going on at the state house right now, it can make people's lives a lot harder too, if that's the direction that our elected representatives want to take things in. Right. And that really is one of the one of the driving reasons for me to to run for office, to want to go to the state house to to help make sure that legislators in Columbus are doing things that actually make life better. And easier for Ohioans, not harder. You know, when I think back to John's and my experience, if there were something at the Ohio level that said, you know, in healthcare, it doesn't matter whether you're a same-sex couple or an opposite-sex couple, you deserve the same respect, rights, responsibilities as any other couple. That would have that would have made a world of difference for us, and. That's what I want to do. I want to make sure that I'm a voice of reason and compassion in the state house. You know, I think about the transgender community in Ohio and the attacks that they continuously experience from the state house and from people around the state, whether that's trying to prevent transgender kids from receiving health care services, preventing their parents from getting that care, that necessary and important care for, for their kids. There's so many ways that legislators at the state house can make life harder or easier. And in my mind, the goal of being a legislator is to make life easier and better for people, not to do the opposite. I mean, the, how revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I, I really do. I think in, in a lot of ways, far too many elected officials have forgotten that this is public service. So
so much of what I know about you after reading the book is about you as a caregiver for John with ALS. And there are a couple of moments in the book where you talk about your own healthcare thinking. You talk about uh, the death of your mom and, and the experience of, of her uh, dying. And you talk about what it was like to see the HIV AIDS crisis simmering around you in the 80s and the 90s and the fear that many gay men had, of course, and, and rightfully so. But can you tell me a little bit more about your, you know, your your own journeys in healthcare? Uh, you know, it, it struck me, for example, that while there's so much focus on your caregiving for John, I don't learn much about your own mental health and how you made it through. There are some moments where your friends are clearly concerned that you're not taking care of yourself, or they want to get you out of the house to, you know, take a walk or go have a drink or something. But you know. Um, it's really, really something I wanted to ask you about and how that might frame your thinking. You know, that that's a great question, Daniel. It's a, it's a very good point because when I think back to my time being John's caregiver, my health, my physical health, my mental health, it all took a back seat. I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking solely about John and what I could do to keep him safe, keep him comfortable. That was my focus. And you're right. I was really fortunate in that we had such a fantastic support network, family, friends who would say, Jim, you need a break. Let us come over. We'll stay with John. We'll spend time with him so that you can go out, whether that's just to take a long walk and be outside, or if that's just to go have dinner and a drink somewhere, or if it's to see a friend or two. Our family and friends, our, our support network really focused on that because they could see physically how caring for John was taking its toll on me. I put on weight. I wasn't caring for myself in any way. And I think back to that and realize, well, that was really stupid. By not caring for myself, I was putting my ability to care for John at risk. So if I could go back, that's one thing I would change. I, I would absolutely get myself exercising or doing something, just something to focus more on my own health. And my mental health, I avoided it. And I know that's the worst possible thing to do in a stressful, scary, overwhelming time, like caring for a loved one who's nearing the end of their life. But I I did. I, I didn't think about my mental health. And I struggled. I struggled mightily with my my ability to to live and think about what's life going to be like when John when John dies and I have to admit that's one of the things I really didn't didn't think about or plan for is well I know John's death is coming there's no way around this what am I going to do when he's gone and honestly because I didn't think about that I didn't plan about that when he died I ran away. I traveled yeah. for a lot. So I did not do a good job. I'm certainly not a poster child for how to how to care for yourself while you're caring for someone else. Yeah, the list of places you went to after John's death was kind of stunning, you know, and and also I you know, I'm thinking you know, it's interesting a story like yours that becomes so public. And I, I can't imagine what it's like to have your life be so public in these ways. And um of course it's been transformative for so many and, and hopeful for so many. But I, I can only imagine that 
John would have wanted you to take better care of yourself too, right? And this is a, a, a dialectic we have often between those receiving care and giving care saying, leave me alone, I'm fine, go take a walk, you know, and, and the way in which it doesn't, it doesn't happen or you kind of hide that from others. You hide what's going on in your own life um, to kind of, you know, do what you think you need to do, but you need others outside of yourself to say, no, like this is not acceptable. You need to take care of yourself. You matter too. Yes. I, there were people who said that I just wasn't open to hearing it. And I certainly wasn't open to doing things, to changing what I was doing to address that, you know, for good, for ill, my focus was so much on John and all I could think about every day was caring for him, whether that was the good parts of caring for him, whether that was the overwhelming and incredibly tiring parts of caring for him, that's all I could focus on. Because in my mind, well, that's what you do when when the person you love is dying. My my needs took a, t- took a back seat and a very far back seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've lived much of your life in the Cincinnati area. I mean, you were you're from Sandusky, um, and you talk uh, in the book about how during during the pandemic, you, you write the the pan or on your website rather, the pandemic helped me to realize what was most important to me, my family and my roots. And there's this kind of return, you know, to Sandusky, which it sounds like you you hadn't been there for a while, but you had always kept your your close ties with the area. It sounds like. Um, I wonder if you could reflect on, you know, being in Cincinnati and now being back in, in Sandusky and um, what was it like coming home, you know, and how do you think about those two different experiences those two different places within the state? I mean, they couldn't be at further points, uh, really. I mean, I guess they could technically, you could go to Ashtabula or something, but you get my point. Right. You know, I so loved living in Cincinnati. And and as you say, Daniel, I lived in Cincinnati for 30 some years and it very much was home. And after John died, and I have to admit, it, it still surprises me that it took me a while to put words to this. But what I realized was a, an enormous part of Cincinnati being home was the fact that most of my life in Cincinnati was spent with John. Mm-hmm. And John was my home. Wherever John was, was that was home. He was my family, the family that I woke up with every day. And, you know, I still had my blood family, my my blood relatives in Sandusky, and we're still connected with them. John and I would come up and visit. And John always joked that his mom loved me more than she loved him. And I always joked that my, my, my family liked him more than they liked me. So family was always important, but it was over the past several years. And I think really during the pandemic, I realized, yeah, I miss my family. I I miss the people who have known me from the moment I was born. I miss the friends I've had since the age of three. So I did decide to move back to Sandusky. And I I have to say, it was the right decision. And it was a great decision. I'm so happy to be back in Sandusky. All five of my siblings are in the area, their spouses, lots of my nieces and nephews. So being back with family is just so so meaningful to me and realizing just how important they are because I don't have John, my family with John. So you're right. Sandusky and Cincinnati, pretty different. I mean, from size, from everything else, but- Climate a little bit. Climate, yes, exactly. I, I do miss the slightly warmer climate in Cincinnati, especially 
Today it was our, it was snowing this morning here in Sandusky, but I also love winter. So that's actually kind of been for me a joy to come back and experience what I think of as more of a, a normal, typical winter based on my childhood. But it, it's I'm thrilled to be up here and it's just that reconnection with my roots and feel, being somewhere where people know me and have known me for you know my entire life and just that feeling of yeah i'm here i i'm home and it's a really good thing i mean i, I can't think of any other way to say it daniel but i'm just thrilled to be back in sandusky not only are you back in sandusky but you know you were running for office so let me put this out there. So it's pretty clear from your story that you were something of a reluctant, even an accidental civil rights icon. And I know you well enough now to know that probably the word icon maybe makes you blush and, you know, and probably is a little, little, little hard to get used to, but there it is. But running for office is a pretty intentional thing. You know, you're, you moved back home, but then also made this decision to plug into that. So uh, what is it about this current moment? Is this all, did, did, did the pandemic also have some effect on your thinking about the importance of people like you stepping up and, and throwing your hat in the ring here to, uh, to run for office? Or can you, can you tell me a little bit of what the, uh, the interiority was on that? I don't know that the pandemic had a direct impact because running for office is something that has been in the back of my mind since the summer of 2015 after the decision. And, you know, I, I'm going to go back to, you know, that first conversation John and I had with Al Gerhardstein, our attorney, when he explained that when, Ohio, when John died, Ohio would fill out his death certificate incorrectly. They would say he was unmarried and my name would not be there as his surviving spouse. Even though we had gotten lawfully married in Maryland, you know, I really boil it down to a really simple yes or no question. Did we want to fight for each other, for our marriage? Did we want to fight for the right thing, for what was just and right or not? I think a lot of people think about that that decision, especially when someone is nearing the end of their life. They probably think, how is that an easy yes or no question? But in my mind, that's all it was. And it was a very easy decision to make. We made the choice to fight for what was right. And I really tie that to part of what's really motivating me to run for office. You know, when I moved back to Sandusky and the idea was thrown out, well, Jim, what would you think about running for office? Again, it's something that's been in the back of my mind since 2015, but it's also really informed by my experience with the case. And everything I've done since then, being involved in fighting for LGBTQ rights and equality and civil rights for all, in my mind, when someone said, hey, what would you think about running for office? That was is equally simple yes or no answer. Did I want to do this and, and do the right thing? Fight for the people of this district, fight for everyone across Ohio or not? Do I want to be part of making things better? Do I want to be part of doing the right thing? And for me, that was a really easy decision. I've discovered, you know, as you mentioned, Daniel, I, I consider myself an accidental activist. John and I did not search out this fight. We did not plan to be, you know, plaintiffs in a lawsuit against the state of Ohio. We certainly didn't go through an interview process. It just happened. And it was the right thing to do. And that's how I feel now. This is the right thing to do in my experience in the case and everything since. It really, really did 
in, awake inside me this need to do what's right to make the world a better place. And that's really my motivation for running for office. So let's turn a little bit to some of the issues here. You know, if I'm right, and so we're talking a few weeks before this is going to drop this episode. Um, and I, I believe that even tonight, they're still trying to figure out how to draw the maps in this damn state. And it's been just a horrendous experience to the point where some people are starting to rightfully wonder if we've just decided to not have elections or if we're not doing that democracy thing anymore. Um, but, you know, we're watching and hoping that there will be some some uh, certainty soon. Um, so you don't exactly even know where the boundaries of the district, if I'm correct on this, that you'll be running in are. Uh, you know that you know Erie County and uh, um, Ottawa County, you know, is going to be in there somewhere. Yeah, but maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, which you know, also just to to put a point on it, is really unfair democratically to not even help people to understand which potential constituents they should be talking to and reaching out to. Right. It's it's incredibly unfair to the candidates, but it's equally as unfair, if not more unfair to the constituents. Yes. You yes. know, when you're thinking about a primary coming up, if you have choices on your primary ticket, you as a voter, you deserve time to understand who those candidates are, understand where they are on the issues, get to know them. And this uncertainty and this continued change in potential boundaries, that's such a disservice to voters. And it certainly makes it incredibly challenging and difficult for the people who want to run for office. Yeah. So so you're right. We still don't know what the what the what the district will be. Sure, Sandusky's going to end up part of Erie County is going to end up in the district, but who knows if that will include all of Erie County, if it will include all or any of Ottawa County like it used to? Will it include part of Huron County? Will it include part of Sandusky County? We don't know. Yeah. And that's unfair to everyone involved in in a fair election. But you're a guy who does his homework. So, you know, I, I know that you've been paying attention to the issues. And I guess so, you know, I was looking at the the Erie Public Health Department data and, you know, like many counties around Ohio. Uh, heart disease is the number one killer and cancer is right up there. And we can talk about the pandemic and all of that. And it seems like Lake Erie uh, frames a lot of the conversations that need to happen in Sandusky. There's questions about, obviously, the the environmental condition of Lake Erie, and but also, you know, how industry can come back and how you can use the lake in a in a responsible way as part of your ecosystem, right? So throwing all those things out there, I just kind of want to ask you, what what are some of the health issues uh, and maybe policy areas you'd like to to get involved with that you think, you know, your district, whatever it is exactly, needs somebody to advocate for? Right. Well, Lake Erie certainly is one of those. And, and I'll take that down to one of the most important things for us as human beings, clean water drinking water. You know, this district, we get our drinking water from Lake Erie. And we we need to ensure that Lake Erie is as healthy and as clean as possible because that has a direct correlation to how good our drinking water is. We we have to focus on Lake Erie. You know, that that's we need that for life. I mean, we can't under underestimate the importance of that or understate the importance of that. 
But, you know, when I think about this district and I think about my family and the people I know here in Sandusky, and I think about myself, you know, this impacts me as well, impacts all of us. And it's the the cost, it's the affordability of healthcare. You know, far too many people across across the, the country forego healthcare because of the cost. They will not fill their prescription. They will they will not go to the doctor because or if they're feeling sick or something's wrong, because they have no concept of what that's going to end up costing them. They're afraid. And that's one of the things we, we have to address as a state, as a nation, is healthcare should not be this expensive. We should not have to choose between putting food on the table, declaring bankruptcy, and getting healthcare, caring for ourselves or our families. So the, the cost of healthcare is just out of control. You know, I, I really do. I, I, I take this back to 1973 when President Nixon signed the um, Health Maintenance Organization Act. That act allowed insurance companies and hospitals to become for profit. Yeah. Up to that point, they could not. And profit is what drives the cost of our health care. And there's, in my mind, there's something just wrong about that. I also want to add too the, the the role of for-profit entities. I mean, yeah, they they are in every part of healthcare, but they are especially prevalent in in, in nursing, in skilled uh, skilled nursing facilities, in hospice, in some of the very areas that you have real expertise in, based on your own experience. I mean, even just with John and ALS and kind of navigating that system. So you know, we we need to also think a, a, about the ways in which that particular sector. You know, I, I looked at the the birth and death statistics in in um, in Erie County. I mean, you, you have a lot more people aging mm-hmm. than being born, and that's a demographic that I'm guessing really needs some attention. Absolutely, you know, that's one of the things people worry about. As I get older, how will I take care of my health? How will I afford health care? And that's a scary thing. And again, that that goes back to it's one of the drivers for people not going to the doctor, not filling those prescriptions because they can't afford it on, on a set income. And that leads to people dying sooner than they should. It leads to degraded life. I mean, it, it impacts their daily life. If they're not well, if they're, they're not taking care of their health, that impacts every part of their daily life. So the cost is just insane. And, you know, you, you mentioned my experience with John and ALS. You know, this, this is an issue that people across the state come up against when, when they're trying to get their prescriptions. There's one drug that is approved for use with ALS patients, and it is not cheap. It was on the order of, I want to say, over $1,000 a month. And... Luckily, John had health insurance because he worked until he had to go out on disability. So his health insurance took care of that. But a lot of a lot of Ohioans don't have that luxury. Or if they have health insurance, it won't cover a particular drug. And then they have to rely on, you know, a lot of drug manufacturers will will give subsidies. They'll give here's twelve hundred dollars a month to help cover your copay on this drug that you need to live or that you need to be able to live life. And yet health insurance companies are now saying, wait, no, the patient can't use that 
payment from the drug company towards their deductible, we get it. Yeah. So the drug companies are just, or the insurance companies are out there focused on profit, not actually helping their customers, not actually helping the person whose health is impacted. As you've been out there talking to people and getting a sense of the issues and what's on people's mind, I mean, do you hear about this issue a lot? Are there other issues that come up in Sandusky that you hear from neighbors and people you've been uh, engaging with? Well, cost and availability of insurance, I hear that over and over and over. You know, being able to get health insurance, whether you're employed and have employer sponsored health care or not, just the ability to have health insurance. Is, is a concern, but it really comes down to the cost. You know, spending $1,000 or $1,600 a month for health insurance for your family, that's a huge chunk of income. And a lot of families can't afford that, so they do without. And that harms not just that family, but that's having an impact across the state because you have all of these uninsured Ohioans who are going to an emergency room and stressing that emergency room and getting this this care that's expensive when having health insurance would allow them to care for their health and manage their health and avoid a lot of those emergency expenses but so it's the it's the cost i mean that that's the that's really the big driving thing the cost of insurance the cost of all of those procedures, cost of prescription drugs, that, that, that impacts families' ability to care for their families and put food on the table. So just one last question, if I may, and you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, if you were to win this seat, is, this would be a flipped seat, right? This, this seat is currently held by a Republican. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about your friendship with Rick Hodges, who's a friend of mine as well, and we've had him on the show before, former director of the Ohio Department of Health, and obviously- forever appended to your name via this you know, big civil rights case. Um, kind of an amazing story. And we'll be linking the show notes to some of the, the pieces that have been written about you and Rick. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Rick's a Republican, as we've talked about on the show, and, and you're not. You're a Democrat. So I'm wondering, as you go around talking with folks in Sandusky, uh, how, how do you think about those kinds of conversations between Democrats and Republicans? What are some issues where you can find common ground? What are the issues that push through this intense partisanship in the state house in the country, um, and you know, and how how have you thought about yourself as being maybe somebody who can do that using that framework that that you and Rick have created a little bit through those the, that dialogue as as maybe an example of that. You know, Rick Hodges. I mean, I feel really fortunate to call him a friend and to know him, and I know it surprises people when when you know they hear the case Obergefell v. Hodges and people assume. Well, the people on the other on both sides of that V, there's no way they could be friends. There's no way they could find common ground. Yet we have. And for me, it all comes down to this. Rick's whole point of view is that every person is valuable. Every person deserves the same rights, respect, and dignity as any other person, not just under the law, but in life, on the streets, in daily life, where, wherever that is. Rick is such a firm believer in the dignity of every single person. And that's what he really did. You know, I, I love to think about how he was getting ready for the decision to come out. And 
he lo- loves to tell me, Jim, I was so excited waiting for us to lose, meaning us, meaning the state of Ohio, because he believed that John's and my marriage deserved to be recognized. Families like John's and mine deserve the same dignity, the same rights, the same protections as any other family. He's such a firm believer in that, in the dignity of each person, that he had the Ohio Department of Health ready to go when that decision came down, when Ohio lost, they were ready to go to implement any and all changes related to marriage equality in their paperwork, in their procedures. And he was also making sure that his his employees who happened to be members of the LGBTQ plus community knew that he respected them, cared for them, and wanted them to enjoy life like anyone else. So that's really what I come back to, Daniel, is, is thinking about Rick's focus and his unwavering belief in the rights of every person, the dignity of every person. And I think that's where we can build consensus across the aisle. You know, stories matter. And I think that's that was one of the, that was the power of John's and my story. Everybody loves somebody. Everybody has lost someone they love. And although John and I were a same-sex couple, which might've been outside of the experience of a lot of people, they could relate to loving someone and losing someone. And it's making those connections, those helping people understand or really focusing on what what makes us the same, not what makes us different. That's my focus, is really having those conversations to, to make those connections, to, to connect to other people, to relate, and to help everyone, help all of us understand that we are a lot more alike than we are different. And that goes both ways. It's just as important for me to talk with people on the other side of the aisle to understand that their concerns about their family, no different than the concerns about my family. So it's conversation and it's being open and willing to listen and looking for how we are the same, not how we're different, looking for how we are the same. Well, it seems like if you're able to take that approach to this campaign, but also just the work you do generally, um, you're going to push through a lot of different issues in this state. That's my That's been my experience working with students, working with folks from all different walks of life. If you can find that connection point or that story, the policy comes along almost naturally. That's my hope as well, Daniel. And you know, I really look at this as all of that, in my perspective, it comes down to doing the right thing. Well, Jim, it is an honor to talk with you. I wish you well on the campaign trail and um, looking forward to continuing the conversation, uh, you know, in the coming months and years. Likewise, Daniel, I look forward to that as well. And thanks again for having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks to Jim Obergefell for joining us on the show. I'd like to give a special shout out to my colleague, Rick Hodges, former director of the Ohio Department of Health for introducing me to Jim and for always being a great friend of the show. As always, we've got lots of links and background material in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. You can learn more about Jim and his campaign there as well. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. We received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's social media footprint, as well as an archive of past episodes, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. 
We'll be back in your podcast feed soon. So make sure you're subscribed. Next time, we're going to be talking about mindfulness with Darren Larson. Thanks for listening and be well.